Good morning. So glad that you're here. This is a historic weekend at Cross Point. We are a 52-year-old church, and last night, for the first time in 52 years, we had a public worship service on Saturday. A lot of you who are in this service right now, worshiping, served last night, holding babies, teaching kids, greeting people, doing all the things that it takes to make a worship service happen and make people who are new to it feel welcome. We met a lot of new people who had never been on our campus before who were here because they had an opening in their schedule on Saturday night that they just didn't have on Sunday. So thank you to all of you for helping make that happen. There were, anytime you're starting either a church or launching a new church service, you just never know how it's going to go. I had visions of my wife and kids sitting on the front row looking back at me, saying, well, this is a little awkward. Uh, but there were actually 121 people in the room last night. <laughs> Plus the beautiful, brave, loving souls teaching the kids and holding the babies. And, and some of you are here for the second time. Some of you are here for the third time this weekend. Thank you so much. Our our motto throughout has been to invite as many people as possible to serve in one and worship in another so let's worship. That's why we're here. We're here to pay attention to God, to hear His Word, and we're rejoining Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We took a, time, a break as Christmas time approached to remember His birth. Now we find ourselves back in the Gospel of Luke meeting a man notorious. The Gospel of Luke calls him Levi. The other Gospels call him by a much more familiar name. They call him Matthew. It's the same person. In Jesus' culture, it wasn't uncommon for a man to have both a Hebrew name of his heritage and a Greek name for the world that the pagans had taken over. Like all of his countrymen and like Jesus himself, in the days of Levi, he lived in Israel, but he lived under Roman law and Roman occupation. One day, the Roman armies had made their threat good added Israel to the empire. So Levi, just like everybody else, was living in a world that wasn't to his liking. His customs, his laws, the way and the place he worshipped, everything was different because of Roman occupation. Even the famous temple was really probably a political move. It was a magnificent place for the Jews to worship God, but it seems to have been a little bit of a political offering to keep people who were very unhappy to live under pagan occupation content with the faith of their, of their ancestors. Levi was not like most of the people he lived beside, though. He had made a very, very painful choice. And I've wondered this week, as I've read his story, and in the classic Bible story, storytelling style, it tells us this brief encounter of Jesus, and it just drops us right into the middle of his life. There's, there's no backstory to tell me how Levi came to make this terrible decision, but it was a terrible decision because the passage, which we'll read in a moment, tells me he was a tax collector. And nothing wrong in 21st century America with being a tax man. We're in tax season. Isn't it wonderful? Aren't you enjoying it? 
I love watching the mail for all the little documents that come through and making sure that everything's right. I live in dread of losing a single one of them and then getting that letter saying that you forgot something and there's penalties and there's got to be other stuff. Isn't it great? In Jesus' day, a tax collector was something of an entirely different class. See, the way the Romans financed their empire was taxing their subjects. And what Levi had chosen to do as a Jew, he had chosen to collect taxes for the empire. And there was a bit of an understanding, a quiet understanding between Rome and these people who couldn't have been considered anything less than than traitors. They had to meet Rome's quota of the taxes collected, but they were, Rome agreed to sort of look the other way because of the terrible social cost of doing this. So tax collectors were notorious, not only for sort of turning their back on their own people by financing these pagan occupiers, but also overcharging, financed their lifestyle. Matthew doesn't appear to be one of the top tax collectors, like another man we meet in the life of Jesus named Zacchaeus, but he would have been overcharging. And all week I've wondered what motivated him to make that terrible choice. See, for us to understand the emotional impact of the choice he made and how the people around him felt about him, imagine the terrorists who make America nervous and have been doing great and small things for all these years, finally somehow in one great moment gaining the upper hand, overthrowing our government, imposing their law on our streets, and one of your neighbors agreeing to be a tax collector for them so that every day as you go to work down Beach Boulevard, you pass his booth twice a day, once on your way to work and once on the way back, and your neighbor three doors down charges you the imperial tax, and a little bit more, because you heard he wants a boat. That's what it would feel like to Levi. That's how his countrymen would have looked at him, a traitor of the very worst kind. And we find his story, which is so many things that Jesus does, is surprising in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 27. Luke 5, verse 27. Telling us about Jesus, the gospel says, after this, he, referring to Jesus, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Like I say, the story just starts with a bang. Levi, there's no possible way he could have been expecting this. He had to know who Jesus was. Jesus was the most impressive teacher of Scripture that anyone has ever seen. Levi knows who he is. He just didn't expect that kind of instruction. He didn't expect that invitation. Jesus is asking Levi to become his disciple, to come under his care, to put his trust in him, to follow his life, to trust him with his own life. And nobody in the world would make that kind of an invitation to a tax collector. See, I'm sure what happened at that tax booth on a day-to-day basis, the best day of Levi's work at the booth had to be one of stony silence. 
as his neighbors and his countrymen grudgingly reached into purses and pulled the money out and glared at him without a word. Some of them probably couldn't help swearing at him a little bit, asking God to curse him, to be done with him. But Jesus, this powerful authoritative teacher who shows up in the synagogue and opens up the Scriptures and reads them and teaches them with personal clarity and has the audacity to say that things that were prophesied 700 and 1,000 years earlier were actually written about him, who demonstrates his power to keep God's word when he's interrupted in a synagogue by a demon-possessed man. Jesus looks at him and essentially says, shut up and get out. And just like that, the demon obeys, and the man who has been possessed, perhaps for years, is free in a moment. This is the Lord who is in charge of everything he encounters. He's the one who comes to Levi and says simply, follow me, and I want you to see what Levi did. It says, in leaving everything, he rose and followed him. I wonder if, any, I wonder if people that day got their money back. What do you think? I wonder how upset Rome was when they found out that one of their trusted tax collectors had not only quit the job, but actually physically walked away from the booth. He left it all behind. Somebody said, I can't believe our good fortune, and went furtively back and got their money back off the table. It's amazing. Sometimes those of us who have been raised in the cultural forms of following Jesus in our world, and that's okay, there's a lot of different ways, and God knows them all. It's a matter of personal trust, not of cultural expression of what it looks like to follow Jesus. But guys like me who were born on a weekday and carried into church on a following Sunday, who as young people had the little mechanism of hearing the sermon and walking the aisle. Anybody ever do that? It's hard to know from our own experiences how we came to know Jesus, what to make of stories like this. This is the first stage of discipleship. Jesus is making an authoritative claim. He's giving an authoritative instruction that not everybody is going to heed. But he says to Levi, I want you to come with me. And the first stage of being a Christian is to just get moving and start to follow Jesus. Must have made for interesting conversations if anybody dared ask him what was happening. Levi, where are you going? I don't know. Following him. Well, where's he going? He hasn't told me. But in just one verse, one of the beauties of God's Word is how much it can summarize of what it really means to be a Christian. In just one verse, it tells you what God is after. It says, leaving everything, he rose and followed him. All of those sinful choices, all of the things that he had comforted himself with to get through the psychological trauma of being one of the nation's traitors, everything that he had once esteemed good or at least necessary, Matthew in a moment stood up and left behind and followed Jesus. For almost all of us, that process is a lot more gradual. 
The process of being a Christ follower, of being a Christian, is that you increasingly turn your life away from the things that you once trusted and loved because you're following Him and you're letting Him reorder the way you think, the way you make your priorities, the things you dream about, what excites both your anger and your joy. Matthew, Levi, is on his way following Jesus. What Luke is picturing here is the biblical act of repentance. You'll hear Jesus explain it in a few minutes as we keep reading. But repentance is a biblical term, and it's one worth knowing. It's a very simple idea. To repent means to be walking in one direction, realize you're wrong, stop, turn around, and go the other way. That's, why Levi, that's what Levi did. He repented. He turned around. He started following Jesus. Repentance is a man who has been shipwrecked and hanging on to a piece of debris floating in the ocean that is becoming increasingly waterlogged and more and more is failing him because it's getting heavier and it's not supporting his weight as well as it did an hour ago. And the waves are starting to reach his mouth and his nose. And he's coming to the terrible realization that if something doesn't change and someone doesn't come to help him, he will soon drown. It's the act of repentance. Is a mo that same man hearing a voice behind him saying, I've come to rescue me, you. If you want to live, come with me. That rescue swimmer going into the middle of that trouble at the risk of his own life, inviting that man, stop trusting what you're trusting, stop doing what you're doing, and put yourself in my hands and I'll make sure you live. Turning loose of the debris and entrusting yourself to the rescuer, that's repentance. And the clear message of the Bible is, if there isn't a moment in your life before you die where you turn from whatever you trust and entrust yourself to Jesus instead, you'll die. You'll die physically and then you'll die spiritually. All of that is wrapped up in this simple story, which pictures Jesus' love for a man who was not expecting it. But the story doesn't end there. Look at verse 29. It says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Gardner translation? Levi threw a party. He invited Jesus home and made a big party for him and reclined at the table next to him and presided over the biggest party that that house had probably ever seen. This very literal translation tells you a little bit about the customs of the time. They're reclining at table. They're not pulling up chairs the way we do. There's a low table and some cushions near them, and people are kind of propped up, maybe on an elbow, leaning in. They're close. It's a great scene. There's all kinds of people. It says there's a large company, and check out the guest list. It's tax collectors and the mysterious others. Why do you think the tax collectors are mentioned? Probably the only ones that would come. It's the only friends he had left. Family and friends have put shame on Levi. 
Maybe that's one of the things that motivated him becoming a tax collector in the first place. All he's got left are his rowdy, notorious, equally bad friends. And he's throwing Jesus a party. And he wants every one of his old friends to simply meet Jesus. I don't know who all the others are, but it couldn't have been a very savory crowd because of what happens in verse 30. There's another group there, a pressure group. It says in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes, these are the religious people. These are people who have paid not only attention to the law of God in the Old Testament, they've done something bad along with that. They've piled their own religious traditions up on top of God's law. And the Pharisees and the scribes are perhaps of their day the most self-righteous people you ever could meet. The world's still making self-righteous people. Some of them are religious, some of them are decidedly irreligious. Their self-righteousness consists in not being religious. They trust in themselves. They're figuring it out. They're being good enough. The Pharisees and the scribes, Luke says, have a complaint. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, here's what they think of the guest list, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, this is in our culture and much more in theirs, this is more than just a casual meal. We understand that in our culture. You can be friendly with someone and go out to eat with them, but when you invite them home, it's a whole other level, isn't it? You don't invite everybody home. In the hospitality-driven culture of this world, to accept an invitation into somebody's home meant that you wanted to have an extended relationship with them. It meant that even though you may not be the same person, you accepted them. Jesus is behaving like he actually likes these people, and it really offends the religious establishment. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Even in our world, we know that accepting an invitation into someone's home is, they want to take the friendship to a whole other level. If you're friendly but not that close, you just invite them to Chili's, right? <laughs> if they're come close, heart-to-heart -heart kind of friends, you ask them to come home with you. And it's not comfortable for everybody. Maybe you've been invited to those kind of parties and you don't really want to be there because you really don't like these people very much at all, but there's kind of a social stigma of saying no. So you make the excuse when you arrive that you have to leave early. Ever done this? On the way in, hey, thank you so much for having us over. Hey, we can't stay. Johnny's having his braces tightened and, and we have to go pretty soon. Really, on a Friday night? Yeah, his dentist works odd hours. We, we, we really do have to get going. Just, just 20 minutes, right? 15, 15 minutes, yes. We have to go in 15 minutes. But thank you so much for having us over. This isn't Jesus. He's reclining at table. He's having a good time. He's the guest of honor, and he's behaving as if he actually likes these people and accepts them and is with them on their terms, and he is with a difference. Look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, we stand in some ways, even though it's so long ago, we stand in the same kind of tension that the disciples and Levi and the Pharisees and the scribes felt in that room. Some of us who are actually following Jesus are tempted to behave like Pharisees and scribes and the unwitting message we send to people who actually need God because Levi needed God and he knew it. That's why in a moment when he heard that he was being invited back, that he could hear the word of God, a man who had been unwelcome in the synagogue is being called by the greatest teacher anyone's ever heard of God's word to come and follow him, to come learn from him. He left the table and the taxes and anything else that would keep him away from God. But one of the temptations of following Jesus is to make a quiet little list of people who need God but aren't really welcome. And the message, the unchristian message that sometimes we send to those who actually need God sounds like this. We tell them to stay away. That's what Levi had heard from the Pharisees and the scribes and practically every other person in his culture ever since he decided to be a tax collector. That's why there were only tax collectors and as the Pharisees described them, other notorious wicked people that they just put under one big heading, sinners at his party. See, one of the most destructive things that people who are following Jesus do to the name and the reputation of Jesus is make invisible little lists of people who aren't really welcome, who we tell you stay away. You have any people like that on your list? Sometimes they're individuals. People who have blown it so spectacularly that really you just don't want anything to do with them anymore. They have behaved shamefully. They are guilty. And the message sometimes is stay away. I hang out as best I can before services start out front. Maybe you saw me on the way in. Hope I didn't startle you. People have remarked that, you know, maybe something's wrong with me as far as I roam and as fast as I walk trying to say hi to as many people as possible. <laughs> One reason I do that is I want to just know who people are and on what kind of shape they're in coming to church. I can't tell you how many times in front of this church and in front of many others in several different countries. Sometimes I get an actual question. Sometimes it's more of an attitude. There's a sheepishness, a nervousness where someone is actually kind of putting out this message. Am I really welcome here? And in those situations, I ask myself, I wonder what the followers of Jesus have said or done to make this person wonder whether they're even welcome in a place where God is going to be announced and worshiped. That's the stay away. Sometimes it's individuals, sometimes it's whole groups. See, there are people in entire groups that are very far from God who maybe are opposed to Him, who have betrayed the decencies and the kindnesses that the rest of us have agreed upon. It's very easy to fall into the ditch of the Pharisees and the scribes saying, tax collectors and sinners, those two groups, stay away. But then there's a ditch on the other side of the road. 
See, Jesus knows where he's going, and when he invites you to discipleship, make no mistake, he knows exactly where he's headed, and he will always lead you down the path of truth and right and righteousness. And the world, the sin, flesh, and the devil, things that are opposed to Jesus, they don't care which ditch you get into as long as you're on one ditch or the other. This is the ditch of stay away, that you have to be good enough for God, that you have to do the right things, that you have to clean yourself up first, and then God will accept you. That's the call and the invitation of every religion, including some religions that call themselves falsely Christianity. Set the standard up here, you work hard enough, maybe someday you'll be good enough. The ditch on the other side of the road doesn't tell people to stay away. It makes the opposite mistake and tells people, whatever you believe, whatever you're doing, everything's okay. One of those two lies keeps people away from Jesus. I know Jesus wants nothing to do with that and knows that's a lie because of what He said in verse 31. Look, the question is, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? These are the wrong people. Shouldn't you tell them to stay away? Jesus answered them, and it's very interesting because they grumbled at the disciples and He answered the question. Did you see that? You ever get caught gossiping about somebody and they overhear you and they speak up and tell you the truth? That's what's happening here. They don't want to engage Jesus. They want to gripe at the disciples. But Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I'm with these people, people who you've told to stay away, people who you consider notorious sinners, people you think are far from the love of God because they're sick. I'm a doctor on a house call. I've come to bring healing. He doubles down and makes it clear in verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus isn't telling Levi and his friends that everything's okay. It's awkward for everybody in this room. For the Pharisees and the scribes, it's awkward because Jesus is actually accepting and loving people who are very far from God, and everybody knows it. But it's a little bit awkward, I think, for the tax collectors and these notorious people because Jesus says right in front of them, the reason I'm here is you're all sick. You're all in need of healing. You're all, verse 32, you're all sinners. I've come to call you to repentance. And the only people who don't know need repentance are people who are righteous already. You know who was righteous in that room? Just one. Jesus himself, that's it. See, the idea of going to the doctor is an interesting one because most of us resist going to the doctor. What do we say? I'm okay, I'm okay. I just need a nap. Just a little vitamin C and a lot of water, I'll be fine. And then if we're really sick, it overwhelms us. And we desperately want to go to the doctor and we don't want to wait for two hours in the room outside his office because we know we're sick. Jesus says, if you're in that condition, that's why I'm here. I have healing and forgiveness for all of you, but I will only heal, forgive. I will only give eternal life to those of you who are humble enough to know it. See, the real sting in this story for me as a disciple of Jesus is it's made me reconsider two things, my list and my bubble. 
The list is maybe a quiet list of people that I know God loves, but in my personal investment, in my deliberate time spent with them, in my time spent pursuing relationship with them, in terms of what I actually do, I've pretty much given up. Thank God, literally, that Jesus doesn't give up. He goes to the tax collector. He tells people who don't have much hope of being right with God, hey, you come with me, and Jesus takes care of everything. It's also made me consider what I call the bubble. See, one of the most natural things when you start following Jesus is you start loving Him, and you start loving the people who are following you along with Him. And if you're not very careful, if you're not as intentional and courageous and as willing to face criticism and be rejected as Jesus was, you can build a very thick Christian bubble where all your buddies are believers And the only people you really know, the only people you actually act like you like, are Christians. See, it's the most interesting thing in the world. Every survey I can read tells me that almost every Christian knows he he should share their faith. And the same survey tells me that very, very few Christians do. One reason is the bubble. Within a few years of following Jesus, most American Christians, at least the same survey says, don't have any friends, any real friends, any close friends, any come-over friends, people who aren't Christians already. Jesus is righteous and pure and good, and He is going to stay in relationship first with His heavenly Father, but He's going to keep going out intentionally both to His disciples and people who have no hope of ever coming back to God, and He's even going to stay in relationship with these judgmental Pharisees and scribes, all so that everyone who cares to listen will know that he was telling the truth when he said that he hasn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let me close this little time of teaching God's Word to you by inviting you to do two different things. The first is for those of you who know you're following Jesus. My invitation to you is to take a minute or two and consider your list. Are there any groups you've quietly put outside of God's love, at least in the way you behave? You just don't want anything to do with them? You might never say they're beyond hope. God could never possibly love and forgive them. You know better than that. But in terms of you putting yourself out there, are there any groups or individuals that you've put outside? And a second question, if you're following Jesus and you want to throw a party for Jesus, who would you invite? See, the clear intention of Levi is he wants his rascally friends to meet his new boss. He wants them to meet the rescuer. If you could throw a Levi party, a Matthew party, if Jesus said, I'll be at your house later this afternoon... I'll talk to your friends. I care about your friends. I want to meet them. Who would you invite? People who don't know him that you would invite to the party. Can you take a minute and write some of those names down as well? Maybe it's family and friends. It usually is. We just get a little unintentional. We get a little forgetful of how important, how life-saving it'll be for them to meet Jesus. 
Final question is for those of you who may not be sure that you know Jesus. If you haven't turned from the debris and personally entrusted yourself to Jesus, this is my invitation for you to do so. So you can hang on to all sorts of stuff your entire life, but you'll discover a second after death, the only thing that will sustain you and take you to eternal life is the one who came to die for you, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who put himself on the cross to bear the sins of self-righteous people and notorious admitted sinners. He came to call everyone who needed him to repentance. The tragedy is not many will trust him. This is my invitation for you to do so, to say, Lord, I get it. I'm giving up on me. I'm giving up on religiosity. I've been, maybe you'd say, I've been coming to this church and trying to figure it out and try to follow the rules as best they explain them to you. We're not here to explain rules to you. We're here to present Jesus to you, to say that there is a person who loves you, who is willing and able to save you, and if you'll trust him, he will. And if you're ready to turn from your life to his I'd invite you to pray with me and take that same connection card that's in the bulletin and just let us know what you've done because we sure want to celebrate with you. Can we pray together? If you're not certain of your relationship with Jesus, again, this is my personal invitation. I can't do for you more than I've already done. I can tell you about him. The rest is between him and you, but if you'll trust Jesus as your Savior, I'm inviting you to make this the time where you make that U-turn and you come to him. And for those of you who already trust him and know him, you know how good he is. Hey, what's that guest list look like? You have some people you'd like us to pray for, friends and family members that you're very concerned about, you want us to pray for, put them on the card. I promise we'll pray for them this week as a church staff. Father, I pray that you'd work in hearts right now if there's people here who don't know you, that you would, by your grace, pull them across the line of trust and faith, that they'd start trusting you as Savior. I pray for the many of us, Lord, beginning with me, who have been guilty of building a bubble and hanging out mostly with Christians. We don't have many people we're introducing to you because we haven't been intentional about it whether names made it physically onto a piece of paper or you brought names and stories to mind, help us, Lord, to go to them as you went to Levi so that you, Lord, may be known. You spent time with the wrong people because you wanted to put their feet on the right path. Help us, Lord, to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.